You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Debbie Kilroy was sentenced to six years in prison in 1989. She witnessed the only murder inside an Australian women's prison and was stabbed herself during the incident. Whilst in prison, she lost almost everything. But after extensive studies and her release from prison, she established Sisters Inside, which advocates for the human rights of women in the criminal justice system. Debbie Kilroy, welcome to The Stick Up. And, um I just want to thank you for coming on here. You're definitely one of my heroes. Like you were a pioneer, and um, when I was finding my own purpose of wanting to go out there and help people, in particular survivors, I think, you know, looking at your knowing and, and knowing about your story, it was definitely definitely uh, an inspiration, and, and seeing that you pioneered the way for other people. Mm, thanks for that. Then can we just start? Just go for basics. Like we'll just start. We, you, you know, where did you grow up? I grew up here in Meangin, so on the north side of. Otherwise yeah. known as Brisbane or Bris Vegas. Um, so, yeah, so grew up, you know, with mum and dad and my brother and my grandmother, so very poor. You know, and, and as a child, like, what did you aspire to be? Did you, you know, what was your aspirations? I, I don't actually remember much of my childhood, you know what I mean? Like, there's massive gaps. I think, you know, I remember us kids playing in the streets. We lived near a cemetery, so we used to play in the cemetery with all the other kids in the and in the area, you know, like I said, we were all poor kids, Aboriginal kids, you know, so we used to hang out down at the cemetery most of the time. Like we didn't have television and things like that. I think we got a television. I think we got a television. I remember seeing the television when, um, you know, that bloke walked on the moves. Was that 1960? Neil Armstrong, yeah, Neil Armstrong. Yeah, like that's the first time really I'd seen a television. Um, black. Yeah, wow. <laughs> People would be quite shocked. So, yeah, so we, you know, used to go to the school up the road, so um, they used to, uh, back in them days, allow us poor kids to go to the Catholic schools, so, you know, it was a school run by nuns that were very brutal, that used to give us the, um, the leather strap all the time if we, you know, deemed, they deemed that we did something wrong. Through the work, like, through the work I do with the survivors, we heard those nuns were brutal. Yeah, they were brutal. They were brutal. <laughs> But yeah. I was one of those kids that always asked the question, why? I'd always challenged authority. I always asked why. I'd always, you know, I remember the nuns. I remember one time, I think it was in probably grade one, um, there, there was this massive tree in the schoolyard. It was huge. And, you know, the, bo- the boys used to climb up all the time. So I climbed up it and I got pulled out by the nuns. And they used to wear all the, you know, the, the whole nun outfit in them days. And um, I got six of the best for climbing the tree and it's like why am I getting this leather strap you know it's like well girls aren't allowed to climb trees well fuck that um so you know that really launched me into probably um realizing very quickly that adults were unjust and um really it was going to be a battle particularly 
for us girls because boys could do things and us girls weren't allowed to do things. So what I used to do to the nuns, if they, you know, were coming, the headmistress, to give me the strap um, and I'd have to follow her along the verandas, you know, that was an old school, you know, I would just pull her, um, <laughs> the nuns, dressing off her head and she would run because they were... Habit. Isn't it a habit? Is that what it's called? Yeah, habit. That's it. I couldn't think of another. Yeah. Run and screaming because, you know, we saw her hair. But at least, um, yeah. you know, and then I'd get in trouble for that. But I mean, um, you know, I was one of those children that probably these days would have got kicked out of school in grade one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, the sounds of thing, you, by just off what you've just said there alone, you're, you know, you had, you're a natural born lawyer. You're always going to be a lawyer with that. The most asked question a lawyer is going to ever ask is why or how. <laughs> well, I never thought back then ever about being really anything. We weren't encouraged to dream about what we wanted to do, you know. The questions weren't asked. What do you want to do when you grow up? Like, I don't even remember having a um, any idea or any dream of being something when I grew up, you know. We were just struggling mm. to survive, so yeah. I grew up in Mount Druitt, and I, uh, it's very similar, I dare say, very similar in Western Tavern of the Sydney. Very similar. We didn't, there was nothing, you know, there wasn't any big role models out there sort of pointing in the direction of what you wanted to be. For me, it was all the crims, all the bank robbers were the ones that looked like they were getting ahead. And, and you know, I mean, that, that were the people that I wanted to be like. Back in the day when they were armed robbers, right? Yeah, yeah, the real ones, not the, not the servo station ones. And, you know, was there any indicators, like, from a young age that you were going to sort of get into trouble or anything like that, do you think? Well, you know... As you would know, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, when I was growing up, there really weren't cops around, right? Like you see cops now, they're everywhere. They're infiltrated everywhere. Every third car. Well, and also they're in schools, you know, like, you know, they go. Like my granddaughters go to the kindergarten just three buildings up, you know, and cops visit there. You know, my granddaughter goes to school down the road here. There's a cop in the school, like... Cops have infiltrated every part of every part of our lives, you know. So the racial gender violence of policing is alive and well, but it wasn't really much so when I was growing up. You'd hardly ever see the cops, right? Yeah. Probably the first cops I ever seen was like the, um, when they first established the juvenile aid bureau, and, and they weren't in police uniforms; they were detectives. They were in plain clothes, and they were cops, and that's because um, they were called to my school because I was wagging school. So, you know, they call the cops in and, you know, then the cops make recommendations to then have had, well, they made recommendations to have me locked up in, that was the first time I went to the youth prison for wagging school. I was 13 and they took wow. me to my school uniform. What, what, was the, what was it back then, Wilson? Yeah, Wilson, Wilson Youth Hospital. Yeah, so it was called because it was run by Queensland Health. Right, so there was nurses, orderlies, psychiatrists. It's pretty, pretty well known. There was some pretty bad abuse going on there. Did you encounter any of that? Oh God, yeah. The abuse was horrific, like many things, from physical to sexual abuse, like, and it was ongoing. And you know, the abuse by the state, in particular, you know, like as a thirteen-year-old child um, that grew up, even though I grew up really poor and in a very poor area. And we're all struggling, you know, to put food on the table and just live. When I first hit the prison system at 13 in my school uniform, it was the first time I'd ever actually experienced physical and sexual harm by the state. Yeah. So that's where it started. Like, 
you know, um, I know for a lot of kids it was happening at home, but for me it wasn't. And so, you know, it's quite horrendous. It is. Uh, it's horrendous and it's, and it's government sanctioned. That was the part. Well, I, went to, I went to an old, old prison when I was 16. I was sexually abused. Yeah. And then that old prison as a 16-year-old was unjustified. Well, anyway, and they're trying. I know. I noticed they're trying it over in Western Australia at the moment, sending sixteen-year-olds to prison. It's ridiculous. Learn nothing from the past. In that time, how long did you spend in Wilson? I was in and out of there because, well, see, back in them days, you didn't go to a court and get sentenced, like the kids, yep. like a you know care and protection, so-called care and protection of the state or care and control. We were deemed uncontrollable, right? So we were put in Wilson, yep. and then the psychiatrist would actually. He, it was always a he, he had the power to keep you in or release you. So you didn't go to a court and be sentenced and, and, you know, like, or remanded in custody. Like, eventually that happened because I wasn't allowed to go home, even though there was no abuse at home after the period I was in there for, because they put me in there for four weeks to assess me, right? And that's what mum says today, still today, you know, because, you know, they never went to school, they didn't understand, and these people were people in authority, and so they took note and so signed off to allow me to be put into this prison um, to be assessed, to stop me from wagging school, right, and um, taking off, running away from home and hanging out with my mates. Um, And like Mum said, if they would have said, paint the house hot pink, they would have done that without even question, you know, and still today... You know, mum's in her 80s. Like, there was still never any assessment done or anything ever given to them. Um, it was just, uh, you know, a lie. Straight away, I think of the trauma that would have caused your mother. Well, my father died suddenly when I was in there because he was so wow. stressed out. Isn't it crazy what these people have done, got away and done to families over the years? I public really knew the depths and that's what you know I, i'm trying to do with the work i do today is educate the public that the things that we shouldn't we shouldn't investigate this sort of stuff but they're doing it again like they do it every day you know like they convince people who um you know are too fearful to speak up or to give them information to make an informed decision but i mean and but it's always about the decision to lock your child up and so we hear that now and the law and order bite has taken um you know quite significantly in this country in the last number of decades to where we have people now, families advocating to have their children locked up, um, for, you know, in their so-called best interests. But if the families were informed about what actually happens, as we know, in any prison environment, they wouldn't be advocating that at all. But I mean, there's this like unconscious bias or, uh, of trusting the violence of police and prisons and any other form of, you know, caging. Yeah, I went out to um, Brisbane Youth Detention Centre uh, last week. Uh, I was invited to go out there and talk to, in particular, the African gangs. And um, man, those kids are beautiful. They really are beautiful souls. They're just seeking validation and a place to belong and the racial prejudice that they face from that. One kid was telling me that he, he, he'd he never been in trouble. He worked at McDonald's, worked at McDonald's to get a set of headphones. He bought his headphones, the cop was snatched them off his head, smashed them. And that's when his trouble began. It started with resist arrest and everything. He says, I've never done nothing. And he said that I formed an opinion of them people. You know, and it laid, it just, it's just crazy what they do to these kids. And, and them homes, they're not far out. They destroyed me. All right, so, you know, it's well documented that you, you, you know, you, you went into, you know, you went into an adult prison. You, you, when did you meet Joe Kilroy and how did that relation form and how old were you then? 
Oh, um, Joe and I met when we were about, I think I was like 14, he was 15, so yeah. there used to be a, a hamburger shop, the Dandy Burger, that we all used to hang out. Um, yeah. And uh, and he was still in the orphanage, well, he was in Boys Town then, getting brutalised there, but when he used to come out, um, there was a house beside the, the Dandy Burger um, with the big family there, the Springers, and he, he would be, um, he'd be there. So. I'd met him there at that time, so I'd, I've known Joe for quite a long time. So we were kids that were both institutionalised and grew up and brutal, were brutalised by the system. I didn't know Joe, but I never had no idea he'd been to to to, um, uh, to Boys Town. And we, in, the, in the work I do, we we've done a lot of these Boys Town cases where they they were, they were called out for abusing here in, in Bow Desert and then moved to Ingadine in Sydney. Well, that's where he was. Crazy. He was in an orphanage. He was put in an orphanage from the age of two, because his mother was hit by a drunk driver and killed. And uh, within 36 hours, him and his two siblings were put in to nudge the orphanage because back then in the 60s, white policy was that Aboriginal children could not stay with their families, so they had to be assimilated and raised um, within an orphanage. So that within you know 36 hours, because um, his mum got killed up there, because he's a uh, bachelor that's his uh, traditional owner up there that's his country um those kids him and his two uh, his brother and sister were brought down from um otherwise known whitefellow way harvey bay and in the orphanage yeah. within that short period of time and so they grew up in the orphanage he was only two years of age but by the time when he finished primary school grade seven the orphanage wouldn't uh, their rules was not to have the boys they couldn't have boys in high school so they were all shipped off to um Boys Town, so they're there with other kids who'd been get, you know, who'd been criminalised by the cops and brutalised by the cops, and they were all thrown in together. And then uh, he was horrifically brutalised in Boys Town, yeah. And so, and he has sued, sued Boys Town and gone through all those processes, and is still highly traumatised from that violence. Do you think you two were bonded by your traumas? Absolutely, yeah. You know, like we were all us kids, and still today, the women who are my sisters, you know, we're all bonded in that way because of what's happened to us and and how we won't walk away from each other, you know. It's the same as my relationship with Joe together. Like, of course, we were both institutionalised. And, and, you know, in the relationship, we didn't have role models about how a healthy relationship should happen. We only knew what brutalisation was. So, you know, we caused each other harm um, over the yeah. years until we did our own healing work. You know, it's it's funny. You, 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 it's not so funny, but how you say that? I, I, I like all the boys that I went through the boys' homes with, and obviously we were sexually and physically abused. We have a we have a bond that's no no dissimilar to sort of someone who went to war together. You know, mm. we have this amazing bond, and it's always you know we understand it. I guess you and Joe would have understood each other better than anyone could have ended understood each other. Would it be fair to say that? Yeah, like it's it, we were kids, right? Teenagers, and so obviously drawn together. I don't think we could articulate it though. We couldn't yeah. articulate that until. But it's nothing special, Dad. Don't you think? Absolutely, it's subconscious connection that. Yeah. And that's hard to articulate. But I mean, you know, like the women that I was in the youth prison with, the girls then, who those that are still alive now. Um, we're still close. We may not, you know, some I might not see for years and then as soon as we hook up, it's like yesterday, we can just continue on. We don't have to, like, do this 
meet and greet again and what's happening we just launch back into the relationship that we had and keep moving forward and it's like it's the same thing you know with women that I was in prison with it's the same you know like yeah. you know and even now Joe spends a lot of his time over in Manjurabar because he hates it here you know in the city and uh, and he's retired right and and he loves it over there um, and but you know I love doing what I do too so um, I'm over here in the city, but I mean, you know, we just pick up where we left off. It's like, yeah, the relationship will never be broken. In, yeah, and no one can break it. And no, it's like no one can break the relationship that I have with the women inside and with what I do every day. And, and I don't call it, it's not a job. People will say it's a job. Yes, I'm working, but I mean, it's my life. That that's This is how I live my life is about the relationships and building more relationships to move forward so that we can all just move on in life and abolish the prison industrial complex and all its harm that it causes. Yeah. I mean, I, I so relate to what, you, what you're saying there. And that, this is this thing that, you know, we're, like what I like for my, my, my purpose at the moment is, is and it has been for a long time. I, I say this, you know, I found my, through the Royal Commission Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, I found my purpose in life and that was to tell my story yep. and um, and to hopefully inspire other people to to tell their story and begin the healing process. And we the people that we've you know I've, we've worked with so far just we have we share stuff and it's amazing and I relate to that. Getting like so, you formed a relationship. You sort of with Joe, and you moved in together, and that sort of thing. Or yeah, we did. We moved in probably when we were when I was maybe twenty one. And and you sort of your trouble sort of become come under the Joe Peters and draconian laws, didn't they? Well, look, I look. I went to prison when I was seventeen because you know it's only up to yeah. a couple of years ago that they changed the age to eighteen. But you know we, they were locking up seventeen year olds from day dot. But um, you know, so I was sent to Bogger Road as a 17-year-old. Um, and my, my nana, my grandmother, came up and bailed me out with her 50-cent 50, 50 piece collection that she had in the glass jar. So, what was the bail amount? What was the bail amount? It, was, it was. It wouldn't have been that much, right? Because it was, you know, I was 17, so it would have been uh, 1978. So it wouldn't have been much. But it would have, well, much in our terms now, but it would have been a lot in their terms yeah. because, you know, it's all relevant, right? But she came and bailed me out, and then, anyway, when matters were all finalised, I think when I was probably, maybe... Because what they did, the cops held charges back on me and charged me when I was an adult, so they could lock me up then and, um, and didn't process it through the, the youth system. So yeah. um, they left until I was an adult, and they do that to kids now, um, still. Yeah, but anyway, I did get it, didn't get sentenced to a term of imprisonment for those charges that I was first locked up in Bogger Road. And then I went back into Bogger Road as, uh, when I was uh, 28, I think, 19. Tell me about your first day in Bogger Road as a 17-year-old, Deb. Just what was going through your, what was going through your mind? Like, wow, that's, that's pretty daunting, isn't it? Well, you know what? It wasn't. <laughs> no? Because I'd spent so much time in and out of the youth prison system and the matron used to always say to me, you're going to adult. And I'd go, well, I give a fuck. Send me wherever you want to send Because <laughs> I always get my guts. I used to be locked in solitary to confinement all the time. I wasn't allowed to walk on carpet. Um, like I spent most of my teenage years in solitary confinement. And, uh, you know, and if I was allowed out to go somewhere, I'd always check the door handle like, 
um, to see if her door was locked in her office because sometimes she left it unlocked and if her door was unlocked you could just get through her office through the windows out on this balcony of the prison and then jump the fence into the house next door and escape so I used to do that all the time but so that's you know she would keep me locked up in isolation I'd be drugged up they'd give me needles to sedate me um, you know and if I wasn't in there I'd be in treat the section called treatment where it's supposed to be all the bad girls but I mean that was all me and my mates where they just brutalized us and so you know we used to, used to flood the place because there was nothing to do right they didn't do anything they were just you know perpetrating inflicting violence and harm on us and so you know we used to just do as kids do is smash the place up you know and like people get horrified about that but if you've got nothing to do and you, you're being harmed all the time um, that's how you react as a child, you know? Do you think violence taught you, when they perpetrated violence upon you, and I love I love this because I, I know the answer you're going to say, do you think that them perpetrating violence on you taught you anything about not being violent? Oh, God, no. They taught me how to be violent. That's what I was yeah. experiencing, and that's all they, they were doing. So, you know, as well as the messages that they gave us by telling us we're bad, we're no good, will never be anything but bad. So in my mind as a child, and I hear the so-called quote, end quote, youth workers, they call them now in the youth prison, they're not youth workers, they're screws, they're prison officers. I hear them say it to kids now. You might have heard it out at the Brisbane youth prison when you were there, telling, yeah. telling you know, they tell the boys and the girls that they're bad. And one of the last times I was out there at the Brisbane youth prison, this Screw's telling this young girl that you're bad, you're nothing. And straight away she said, well, I'll show you how fucking bad I'll get. And I thought, and I said to her, okay, okay, stop, stop. Because it was just it was reminding me of me. You know, and this is decades yeah. on. Nothing's changed. And so, yeah, so it was about, well, we'll show you how bad are we, you know, like to the point where anything was on, anything. And that's, that's that whole thing. Like I've done 23 years in prison and... And part of that healing for me has been the prison trauma. It's been a massive part of me. Them shitbags telling me consistently how bad and how putrid I am and all this stuff. Because after a while you start to believe that. And um, part of that whole thing is getting myself, it's been part of my own healing has been learning my fucking self-worth. Yeah, well you become institutionalized and you believe what they say and you believe in the system and you believe that you're bad, so you should be punished, right? And so you yeah. accept the punishment. Not only the punishment, uh, how we punish ourselves individually, but punishment by them, at, you know, which is, which is by the state. And they get away with it. And, and they are lawfully allowed to use violence and punish us and uh, yeah. cause her horrendous harm. And so that's why prisons need to be abolished. The whole, any, any carceral mechanism, I don't care what it is, whether it's the family policing system, even the education system now, you know, um, you know, they're legislated here to um, keep kids back after school, keep them in detention, detain them. You know, it's the same as caging. Like, you know, we've got to start. You stop using carceral mechanisms, carceral anything carceral, because we know that that causes harm. Deb, what did? I just want to backtrack a little bit. You're in isolation, segregation. That's well, well documented. That's not good for you. What did that do to your mental health at the time as a young, as a young person? What What I've done with trauma all my life is to anything, any trauma that's been inflicted on me is, I don't know. Somehow I have a lot of it have, have just 
I was going to say deleted it. Like um, it's like I've disconnected from it. Some of it, a lot of it, I don't, I don't even remember it. Right? I can tell you in broad sweeps and conversations that this happened, but to give you the actual detail, um, I wouldn't be able to do it. And and that's how my brain has allowed me to survive. Sure, that's disassociation. I, I, I know it really, really well. I've done it for many years, and. So yeah, it's great. I just I hate to think, and I, you know what? And I think you would have seen it when the the Don Dale stuff up in Darwin. You're like that would have given you some flashbacks seeing all that stuff. Oh yeah, and you know I think the thing that there's these little tiny things that other human beings do at some time when you're in the the depths of the most deepest darkest place in your life, and there will be a little glimpse of light, like a little piece of glitter that shines when another human being just does something nice. You know, like I remember being in um, Wilson and like the psychiatrist had the power, right, to keep you in or let you out. So when you ever called the psych, it was always for to tell you you're staying in or you're getting out, right? And I remember getting called up and they let me out at Sultry. You know, I went up to the psych office and get escorted up there by the so-called orderlies, you know, the men. And, mm. you know, I'm this 14-year-old skinny little kid like you could have swung me around you know like a rag doll but anyway um <laughs> which they did but um i thought i was way stronger and bigger than that <laughs> but you know when you think sure, you're just a little kid but i mean yeah, i go in there and he's like i've got some bad news like oh, what says so, oh your father dropped dead last night and like yeah. like gone stuff like what and he said so you can go back to solitary and you're not going to his funeral and i just fucking lifted the table and th like up ended on him so of course i'm grabbed dragged back sedated through um you know needles they give me an injection and you know and i i can't talk to anyone they won't let me out they won't let me talk to anyone i, don't, I can't read my mother i can't no one to find out what the fuck has happened to my father and other than the matron comes in and s says to me over and over again that I killed him. You killed your father because you, you being here, you've killed him, it's your fault. So I carried that message for decades until I did my own healing work about dad's death. But there was this one, one little nurse, prison officer they were, you know, she came in probably at, I don't know what it, when it was, it was, it was night, you know, like it was dark. She obviously, she wasn't allowed, no one was allowed to come in to me. And she came in and bought me, um, yeah, it's still upsetting. Mm -hmm. mm. She came in and bought a couple of little lollies. <laughs> yeah. Which is an indication that she knew, they knew we were children, right? Like yeah. a prison officer in an adult prison wouldn't come into solitary and bring you a couple of lollies and sit on no. the floor with you. But that's the indication that I'm just going to come in here and sit with you in the in while you're in the deepest deepest depths of despair of your life because yeah. your father's dead and here you have a couple of lollies because you're a kid right um and i remember that very 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 clearly and it was only yeah. then because of her and there was one orderly old robbo <laughs> who the cops mm. would always ring up that wilson the prison when they were bringing me in in the paddy wagon because I always refused to get out and so it was always a big blue a big brawl to get me out like I hooked my hands and fingers all through the cage so they couldn't get me out so it became a really violent experience every time because I just resisted everything in any in any way that I could as a child so what they used to do when um when I was getting 
taken to Wilson again by the cops, they would ring the prison in advance and then Robbo would come to work if, it, if he wasn't on roster. He was an old man, older man. He probably was in his 50s when I think about it now. But, I mean, and he would, they'd open the paddy wagon doors and he'd, he'd get in and like, oh, Debbie, come on, come with me. <laughs> yeah. And it'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Right, I liked him, so I then would go with him. So they learnt how to do that and how to manipulate us and you know, in a way. And so Robbo and Peachy, who was the nurse, then uh, advocated for me to go to Dad's funeral, but the matron's like, no way. So they went to the head of children's services, yeah, and he approved that I could go to Dad's funeral. That sounded pretty personal on behalf of the matron, and that's not too uncommon in them places, is it? No, she was an old bitch. Mm. She was, was so bad that I, she could walk in and I would see her and I would just go and attack on attack because she caused so much harm to me in every way of my being that I was like, um, it was, yeah, it was like an animal out of control that I saw something and just was on the attack. Every boy's home I've ever done, there was a bloke like Robbo that everyone loved. Yeah. And there was, and, and there was always a person like that, the matron. Every single, I just wonder if it's part of their structure that they've got to have that there, you know. Every single place I've been, when you're talking about this, Robert, I, I, I'm thinking of a bloke that I knew from Cobham Boys, and exactly, mm. exactly the same thing. So much has resonated with you. My brother committed suicide when I was in jail in Darwin. They just opened the door. Your brother's dead. You got a brother, Stephen? I said, yeah. He said, well, he's dead. Slammed the door in his face. No phone call, no nothing. Man, I'm, I'm really relating to you, Deb. I really am. I'm, fuck, man, it's, the journey is so similar. Right? That's the thing that what connects us all, those of us who are being criminalised in prison, is we, our stories are the same over and over and over again. But, I mean, you know, but no one takes any notice. No one cares because, you know, we are the scraps that, that they rely on to bolster their livelihood through their jobs and advance their careers on the backs of us. So the prison industrial complex is alive and well. You know, people say prisons fail. Prisons don't fail. Prisons do exactly what they're set up to to do. 100%. With abuse claims, in, in particular in Brisbane, the, the Crown Law have been, they were stating about a year ago, all the, all the abuse stories here uh, sound the same. They're all... They are the same because they were abused in the same manner. Yeah, exactly. Now, just going forward and up, so you and Joe, you are, because it was public, it made, I, I, I'm from Sydney, right? And when you and Joe got pinched together, it was on the front pages of the paper down there. Yeah. Yeah, what happened? What did you just get pinched for? So that was back in 88. So we got pinched for um, drug trafficking. Yeah, so. And Joe, uh, was, um, Joe was playing for the Broncos then, is that correct? Yeah, he was playing for the Broncos, yep. I remember he had a, he had a menswear store or something like that. I, I just remember they were just crucifying him down there, you know, saying... Yeah, we had a, had a business that was set up with his sister's husband who was um, all party to the... Like, it was basically where all the... Um, yeah. Everything sort of happened. But, I mean, yeah, we had a... Um, it was called Kilroy Clothing Company um, that we had at the time. He was playing for the Broncos. The cops had put on an undercover copper on him, on Joe and on myself. Yeah, which was interesting. Like, we didn't know that, obviously, till after. But, I mean, even after we got arrested, one of them kept ringing up, right? Yeah. Um, home. And, and I told him, like, I just didn't know the second one was an undercover cop, right? Because he was a black fella, too. And, and yeah. uh, 
he was a mouldy fella. And, you know, I'm saying, because he's on the phone, I'm saying, you stop fucking ringing up the fucking house. There's no drugs here. We don't do that shit. Fuck off. And then, then within about an hour, we get raided a second time because they held back charges from the first time to come back and do a second raid so that it's back in the media like we were continuing on doing what we were doing, which was a lie. Yeah, and then, you know, the Broncos, you know, there was people in the Broncos and in, in some of their great wisdom, they went and got Joe a lawyer and um, then they put Joe in a safe house and so they left me and the kids at home. And, you know, this is before the second raid and we were told that the cops are coming back and so we're fucking terrified. Me and the kids are terrified. Well, Joshua wasn't, he was a baby, but, I mean, I was terrified and Jodie was nine she was terrified because just knowing you know nine-year-olds can pick up the father's not in the house he's been put somewhere safe and you know they were controlling when when we could see joe and when we couldn't so i fucking got pissed off with him really badly about allowing that to happen because that you know all caught up in that football um you know state yeah. of high profile football will protect you and basically hang debbie out to dry and and the kids but eventually you know, he worked that out and, like, he thought, fuck this and come home anyway. But, um, but you know, it damaged our relationship because the, the trust, right? Yeah, for sure. And then what happened is went through court because you got, you, got, you got a pretty big whack for that. Like, you wouldn't get nothing like that in, in comparison today, would you? Like what you got? <laughs> today, um, dope, you can go and buy, get a prescription for dope. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I, I didn't smoke dope. Look. You know, for me, it was about, Joe did. So I was like, you know, I'll sell it. So he has it for free. It doesn't cost us anything, really. It was just a matter of that. And, you know, um, so, and, um, but see, I also got, so I got charged, Joe got trafficking, got charged with trafficking marijuana. I got charged with trafficking marijuana and trafficking Schedule 1 drugs, so heroin. Yeah. And then, and that, at that time, because in 1986, um, the Joe Kavitsen government in the Drug Misuse Act made any drug, Schedule 1 drug, so heroin, cocaine, back then days, if you had more than two grams uh, and deemed trafficking, it was a mandatory life sentence. So that's what I, I was charged. So I was looking at a mandatory life sentence. So when, when I, I got arrested, like the cops kicked the doors in um, early hours one morning, like we, Joe and I had been at our friend's um, wedding and um, I, went, I left the reception and I went... I had Joshua with me, he was a baby, but Jodie was with my grandmother. So she wasn't there when that happened, thank fuck. But anyway, and Joe wasn't. So they kicked the doors in, arrested me. I had to ring a friend to come and get Joshua because they had arrested me. And so they had me in town there and interrogating me and I'm just saying, I've got nothing to say, here's fuck off. Anyway, and that's when they said, oh, well, you'd be pleased to know your friend Alex is a copper. So then I'm thinking, fucking dog. <laughs> and he was the only cover cop, right? But in the meantime, Joe's come home like early in the morning, seen the door kicked in and took off. And so went, because, you know, he was a black Ulan um, as well. That's when bikies yeah. were deemed the worst of the worst in the world, you know. Um, he took off and went to his mates and they got a lawyer to come down and see me in the watch house on the Sunday. And so this lawyer's in his tracksuit and boots and so funny because he, he says, you can fuck off. I don't know who you are, mate. I'm not talking to you. You could be anyone. And he's like, no, 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 Joe fucking sent me down. He started talking to me. Anyway, he knew a few things that I knew that a cop is, you know. So yeah. anyway, but anyway, so we, and then um, they organised for Joe through the lawyers to hand himself in. 
and that was done on a Monday. So I was remanded in custody, but we went for bail. And so we both got bail, but my, um, the bail for me was $150,000 cash. Like about 1.5 million now, basically, wasn't it? But it could only be cash or two lots of cash. So two lots of $75,000. I was like, oh, fucking hell. And Joe's bail was $10,000. So, you know, I'd already been deemed as the wicked witch of the West that led my husband astray. But anyway, but um, at that time, you know, my, my father had died, obviously, when I was 14. And anyway, mum worked all her life and uh, married another bloke. And he ha- had a property that they just sold. And so they had some money and so they put all the money up and I was released, which the cops were filthy about. But yeah, but it was them preparing for life imprisonment. Wow. That's a lot to have hanging over your head with two young children. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, well, you know, back in, back in, the, in the 80s there, after that, the changes in the drug, you know, the 1986 Drug Misuse Act, um, the, you know, there were so many women in prison that were, you know, women who'd been harmed and, and end up, you know, self-medicating and having illicit drug addiction. Um, but they're all, they all got sentenced to life imprisonment. Like, it was insane. And then when Labor got in in 89, they repealed the laws and everyone got resentenced and all of them were released because they weren't actually selling traffic. Was that it was a case back then, Deb, wasn't it? J.B. Occupedon was nothing's too good for my prisons and nothing's what they'll get. Yes. It was famous around Australia and... Um, the last time I got to, here's one for you, just quickly. Um, you know, I'd done four years on my last sentence. And I had two weeks to go, parole ground to go on rehab. Cop was turned up with six old bank robberies on me, right? But by the time, but I ended up getting out on bail. And by the, but I was, this was the first the judges acknowledging. The judge said, if you never, was never sexually abused, there's a fair chance you wouldn't have been, you know, caught up in the criminal justice system for as long as you were. It's like, like them women are so badly broken and so badly fucking burnt. It's just disgusting how they get, and, and still to this day by the legal system. Oh, you know, and, and, um, and still get sexually assaulted by the state through their so-called strip searching, right? Like it's yeah. like a form of sexual assault. That's what it is. It's been legalized to allow fucking screws to sexually assault us in prison by making us take our fucking clothes off and squatting and coughing and the rest. Like, and they go, oh no, it's, it's bullshit. It's the policies to stop drugs, bullshit. Because when you actually get the evidence, they don't fucking find drugs or anything else. It's just state, it's sexual assault by the state. That's what it is. And so they keep perpetrating the violence over and over and over and over again. I think the police force has become a massive haven for fucking pedophiles because the the, the availability for children from the strip search is just mind-blowing what they're allowed to do. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. And you know what? I, I, got, I just come back from Sydney and I went down there the other day and the facilities they've got available to them where you can just walk someone through a scanner and you see everything. You, you don't need to strip search them. So that's just this continuation, isn't it? It's crazy. Well, that's when you know when there's other, you know, mechanisms that can be used, but they choose not to invest them. But, I mean, you know, look, they just need to, they just need to abolish the, the whole... The whole system is harmful like I'm uh, you know I've got to the point where um, you know we've got to stop talking about rearranging the deck chairs and the sinking Titanic because the harm will continue in any which way and form so you know um, prisons are not the answer 100% so let's go through it so you went through the court system what, what sentence did you eventually get for that 
Oh, so on the day we're going to trial back in 89, because I'm fighting it, because um, I wasn't trafficking Schedule 1 drugs. I wasn't trafficking heroin at all, right? Um, so, and one lesson I learnt also after all this is uh, Joe and I had lawyers from the same law firm, which is a fucking massive conflict of interest that we didn't think about, didn't know about. Like, and being a lawyer now, it's like, oh, my God, what a mess. But anyway... You know, because Joe's lawyer and barrister trying to get him the best deal because he's a bronco, we need to protect him. And so, and the lawyer who had me, it's like, well, it's her fault. She did it. She's the nasty wife, told Joe what to do. You know what I mean? It's her fault. So um, really, we should have had separate lawyers from separate law firms to look after our own interests. But anyway, but we showed up for court and... Um, on the morning of, like for everybody, really, you know, you go to trial, they're still negotiating at the end. And so in the end, they went to Joe and said, if you plead guilty, because he was going to trial, if you plead guilty, we'll drop the mandatory life sentence charges on Debbie. And he just said yes. So anyway, plea deal was done. He pleaded guilty to that. And I pleaded guilty to the trafficking, the marijuana and four possession charges of heroin. So I was in a room with Joe's sister's husband and the undercover cop were sitting in a room in a lounge room in the lounge room and so I was just passed half a key of heroin and passed it to the fucking undercover cop that's what what the possession was I just fucking handed it there there because I was in the room right if I wasn't in the room yeah. it wouldn't happen I'll, you know but um yeah and it's interesting because Joe got three years for the same trafficking blue as me but I got four years because I'm the woman and uh, and then I got two years for each of the four possession charges. Was that a cumulative? One cumulative, so put to six years. The other three were concurrent. Wow. And what was your, did you have a bottom on that, like a non-parole period? No, it was fucking six years straight. Fuck. No remissions back then? No, no remissions. So you done, so you done six on that? No, you could, no, you could apply at half time. So if you get a straight, it's still the same today. If you get a straight yeah. sentence, you can apply. You can apply at half time, but um, yeah. what I did, I applied for early parole. Like it's very rare that you get it. And I got early parole. I made the arguments of early parole because you know I was it was on for young and old in the adult system. But you know I don't expect myself to go in. <laughs> I love your spirit. I was on for young and old. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, you know that's what you want in a lawyer. <laughs> a lot of them don't have it these days. It's oh, let's cut a deal. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, and tell me, where did the law, like, where, like, I, well, maybe I'm read it wrong, but where did you, you, you start law? Did you start it when you were in prison? No. So what happened when I got, when I went inside in October 89 um, to start the sentence? See, one of the things I figured in my mind was I'm going to use this system to my advantage, not my disadvantage. I'm not going to spend all this time in solitary again. I need to fucking suck the system dry. Um, yeah. So, you know, I go to the education officer fairly straight up and he's like, oh, don't waste my fucking time and your time. You've got plenty of time. You don't need to do be engaged in education now. But, you know, in October, late October, I think the 25th I went in, so... And the matron there was... Oh, my God, she was horrific too. But anyway, we organised um, a massive meeting with all the women inside to challenge the matron because the men were getting leaves of absence and everything at, behind us in Bogger Road because we're down the back of Bogger Road. And we're asking why are they getting it, we're not. And so then she said, you know, this is a, um, a mutiny because <laughs> we're all there. <laughs> like, oh, mate, she went off and locked us all down. But anyway, 
that was probably November, probably December. But I mean, by January uh, 6th, I think it was, Debbie, my mate, got stabbed to death sitting beside me and killed in prison. And I was stabbed a couple of times trying to stop it. So that then, you know, took a massive turn in itself. Wow. What happened there? Was it just a, was it another inmate that did it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, crazy. Yeah, prison was overcrowded, you know, Christmas time, New Year's, always a horrendous time in prison. They're like tinder boxes ready to blow because you can't see your family, kids. There was shit being spoken, screws were facilitating stuff and, you know, carrying rumours and it was just disgusting. And, and um, you know, Storm, who killed Debbie, was young and had all her own trauma and fucking just lost it and blacked out um, when she was stabbing Debbie. and. It was only until I hit her on the back with a chair that she sort of come to and ran. But I mean, yeah, but I mean, it was too late for Debbie. Like we were both taken to the hospital and, and you know, even treatment at the hospital, Debbie fell off the hospital bed and died in, you know, the theatre. Oh, that's hard. I got stabbed twice, but it hit my ribs front and back. Um, but you know, they wanted to open me up and I'm like, nah, just take me back to the fucking prison, it's on. Cause you know, prison rules, payback, right? Yeah, square up. Hey, Deb, did you, did you, like, I, I talk about this, I, I, I talk about prisons being dumping grounds for the mental health patients. Was that your experience? Oh, absolutely. I see it more so now than back when I was in there. So I see so many more women in prison now with so many more mental health issues than I did because, you know, there was, um, you know, there was mental health supports and I suppose disgusting institutions as well um, back when we were growing up out at Wacol and that, you know what I mean, where they'd lock the women up and then they deinstitutionalised everything and then there was no money that followed the women or the men, people into the community. So then they all ended up, you know, a lot of people ended up on the streets, homeless, with their mental health issues. And so, you know, they collide with the cops. So then now we have our prisons are full of, majority of our prisons are full of people with mental health issues. That's been the dumping ground now um, for governments. And that creates, and not what I noticed with that has become the escalation of violence. Like you're getting schizophrenics right, thinking around someone's going to kill them and they're armed up. And that's what I noticed that escalation through the like early 90s into now where that escalation of, you know, I know in New South Wales they just closed all the mental institutions and put them all in prison and that just really escalated the violence. Yeah, well they deinstitutionalised mental health institutions and left people to their own devices. So the only place that can't turn them away is prisons and the government are quite happy with that because they don't actually have to fund mental health services for people. And so, you know, they use prison, the governments use prison as a default response to whether it's homelessness, mental health, drug and rehab, you know, prisons are the dumping grounds and the government has a lot to answer for because they have eviscerated so much funding from social services and supports of people in our community um, that, that they just rely on prisons. Um, it's just a joke and that's why the prison industrial complex is getting bigger and bigger, not smaller, because they're dumping grounds for all the social issues that governments have actually um, withdrawn funding from. And I talk about it, it's nothing more disturbing you seeing someone that's in a psychotic episode being handcuffed behind their back and the screws kicking them in the head like, yeah, and you can't jump in, you can't do nothing and they're threatening to skit your dog on them and that like that. If people knew and could see that that happened, the public would be just fucking blown away. And I used to see it on, on, on a regular basis. It's crazy. Yeah, well, the harm that we see is the other form of trauma, right? That we, and because we can't step in and try to stay, stop 
the harm being perpetrated by screws by the prison system that we can't help that other person like just being torn that you're seeing someone brutalized and attacked and you're able-bodied and you can't do anything right um it's, crazy. it's just terrific so i'm haunted by that today some of the things i've seen yeah well I'm saying, you know, so yeah seeing debbie get murdered getting killed was like for me it's like fuck this something's got to change this is crazy Fantastic. And do you reckon that laid a platform for what you wanted to do with Sisters Inside? I was still stuck in the system, right? I'd only been in there for probably eight, nine weeks in a six-year mm. sentence. And but so what had happened was um, payback was on and plans were made. But you know, there was this one old screw who who spent most of his time in Pentridge. We used to call him Ninja because he at the family Christmas parties he for the kids he'd dress up as Ninja, right? And the mm few of the lifers who didn't have kids would dress up as those, the mutant turtles, because that was what yeah. they all loved back then, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember we were going up armed into the chapel, because what had happened was, right, the murder happened, there's a spotlight on the prison, like, holy shit, there's women in prison, holy shit, a woman's killed another woman. So you get all these do-gooders running in, and there's some fucking social workers and all the rest of it want to help us, right? But they didn't talk yeah. to any of us, they talked to the to management. And they say that we can resolve this. Let's get everybody together in the chapel and do a conflict resolution. So we're all right. Yeah, let's go to chapel and do some conflict fucking resolution. Let's go. Anyway, and so, and it was, it was going to be on. Anyway, and it's only that old ninja was at the door at the chapel and said to us, what the fuck do you think you're doing? We're coming to do conflict resolution, ninja. Yeah, we fucked you, I get. And he wouldn't let us in. And I tell you what, he, I don't know if he realised what he stopped that day, he stopped, uh, he would have stopped probably another murder that could have happened or a few murders. But those stupid people that do nothing about prison come in and go, we're going to come in and fix this up. Like, you know, it's like, he's got no idea, you fools, about the violence of prisons um, and, and the rules of the game in here. But from there, but you know, all the prison officers that were involved that saw Storm with the with the um, the um, barbecue fork, she was and she had um, a sharpener. She was had a sharpening stone in her fucking cell. You just had to look through the window of a cell door, and you could see it on her desk. So Screws knew she had that, and and there was a plan. They did nothing. But all those Screws, you know, they they go on um, stress leave and get paid, and we're all left in the prison to survive ourselves. You know, it wasn't just me because I'm stabbed, but every woman in that prison was highly traumatised, you know, yeah. including Storm. Storm was locked up in the men's prison at Bogger Road. I could hear her screaming from the depths of despair in the men's prison coming down over the top of the women's prison, and eventually they put her in solitary confinement in the women's prison. She was in there for months, and so it reminded... I could hear her fucking howling in the depths of despair, and it reminded me of solitary confinement that I'd done as a kid. And in the end, I said to the screws and the manager, can you just fucking let her out? Like, this is this is torture. Like, let her out. And, you know, and she did get let out and, you know, but, I mean, you know, uh, we called it peace, made a pact um, at different times. But, I mean, you know, so when I did eventually get out on parole, or, so I'll go back. So what happened was all new management came in and so there was a new general manager, there was a new education officer, a new activities officer, and you know, they, they 
Gabriel, who was the education officer, was loved education. So she had us all doing things, right? Whether it were TAFE courses or university or courses internally. The activities officer was doing a whole heap of stuff. You know, Labor had just got in, so they repealed laws. Women that had been sentenced to mandatory life were getting released because they'd been resentenced. Um, so, you know, I would say it was definitely a period in this state's history of reform, right? Um, because education was the priority. And so, you know, I started doing TAFE courses and then eventually, you know, I said I wanted to be, do a social work degree because it was the social workers who convinced my parents to lock me up as a 13-year-old, right? And uh, so I wanted the power they had. So um, Gabriel went and argued because I wasn't allowed out. I was um, high security, um, deemed high, high security risk. So um, she went over to UQ and um, argued and they didn't want me. And so that she turned over the, um, their handbook and said, well, aren't these your principles? And they said, yes. And uh, they allowed me in. It's funny that I just told that story two weeks ago to um, the University of Queensland because they awarded me the um, Vice-Chancellor's Excellence Award for social work. And I told them that exact story about how she went there and argued and I was in prison and I came across, escorted to the first lecture at the um, campus over at St. Lucia. And I was, you know, in the lecture theatre with about 300 young people and there's me with my escort and <coughs> how the um, <laughs> lecturer said, okay, for the first subject we want you to try and um, understand people's experiences, disadvantaged people's experience, you know, like go to a DV shelter or go to a court or, you know, do this, do that. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I've fucking experienced all these things except old woman bedridden and, you know, I might get there, I might not, but I mean... You know, so I went down and seen this lecture and said, with the, with the escort, the screw, and said, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm they knew, she knew who I was because I was marked, right? But anyway, I said, I've experienced all these things, except our woman bedroom, and I hope maybe I'll get there, I don't know. But she's like, don't worry about it, we'll just give you credit points. So my life was worth five credit points. <laughs> wow. Can we just talk about when you started studying law? Where, where, how did that come about? Okay, so I started social work, bachelor of social work, when I was in prison. Um, yeah. And um, I was eventually released to the low security prison over on the north side. And uh, in back in them days, you could get out on work release and have leaves of absence. So basically, depending where you were in your sentence, um, you could access work release and leave of absence. So I was, um, I was, um, I started volunteering at a place called Centre Education Program. So they worked with children who'd been excluded, expelled from school, and been criminalised and imprisoned as kids through the youth system. Um, so I went down there and started volunteering my time once a week. So the screws used to drive me down on a Friday from Bogger Road, pick me back up, and take me back to the prison. And then eventually, when I got to the low security prison. Um, I um, used to go down there five days a week and then I eventually got employed as a youth worker. Um, and back in them days, so this is like the early 90s, they even allowed me, because I made an application, to have a car so I could drive because it was down at Logan City. Um, so I used to have a car at the prison that I could get in and drive <laughs> down to um, Centre Ed and drive back. And then um, where you were in your sentence, where you leave of absence, so you could get four hours, eight hours, 12 hours, 
24 hours and then 48 hours, right? You'd work it up to be allowed to go home. So, you know, so eventually I'm working Monday to Friday and then Friday I'd drop the car back at the prison and then I would go home from Friday till Sunday night and go back to the prison. So basically I was just sleeping at the prison on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, five nights, which is unheard of now, right? We've gone yeah. so far backwards and that's what the gradual release processes were. Anyway, I ended up, I felt that I was going to go backwards, right? Like I, I could feel it, like I'd come so far that I was ready to go home, like I needed to go home. So I applied for um, early parole. Long story short, I got it. Anyway, so then I finished my social work degree and really I found the social work degree didn't challenge me intellectually at all because really what I was doing is writing about my experiences and all my sister's experiences <laughs> and just trying to find some academic that wrote a book about our experiences that you could reference, right? Because our experience meant nothing, means nothing in academia world. You've got to have some academic that writes about you and then quote them. But anyway, but then I thought, all right, I've got this social work degree, big deal. Um, I need to do something. And I thought, I want to do law. Fuck this. I'm going to challenge this um, whole concept of rehabilitation, right? You just keep saying to me, no, to everyone, no, you're not rehabilitated, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, all right, I'm going to test the system because I don't believe in rehabilitation, right? I don't believe the system rehabilitates anyone. I said, you know, we change our lives. That ain't about any assistance from, any, from the prison industrial complex. It don't give us any assistance. It ensures that we are continue to be captured and caged for the rest of our lives. So I actually wanted to test, and so I did a law degree and I um, applied you know, to get admitted. Long story short, I was admitted in um, on the 13th of December 2007. So, you know. That's a tough gig up there because it's the old boys, nudgy college type scenario up there, isn't it? You know, because it's a tough gig in that prison. It's a very tight circle with them lawyers up there. been taken on by a couple of them early on in the piece. Yeah. But, I mean, I've been around the block a few times. They forget that, right? So they think they're stepping <laughs> over tactics. So I remember going... Uh, you know, I had this young guy, he was up at Woodford and, um, and he was being brutalised and, he, you know, he'd been charged with some serious offences and, and anyway, I decided, that, you know, we'd apply for bail and get him out so he's safe. Um, and so what I did is, like, you know, in the magistrate's court when you go for bail, you don't do written submissions usually, right? But, I mean, I thought, I'm going to write written submissions. I need to articulate this in a way and back it up legally and, and not just run on, the, on my feet alone, right? And so I went and I did that and I gave the magistrate the written submissions and, long story short, he got bail, right? Anyway, I, I go downstairs outside the courthouse and there's a coffee shop there and I'm just sitting there um, on the phone. I don't know what I was doing, but anyway, these two blokes who are well-known criminal defence lawyers around town um, come and go, how you going? I go, yeah, right. He goes, you know, they go, you don't fucking come here writing written submissions, fucking big note in yourself. I went, sorry? I said, who the fuck are you, mate? I said, oh, so did your fucking client get bailed today? No. Of course, mine did. And not long after that, I'm in the Supreme Court. So early on when I got admitted, this young boy, he was 17 years old, he was charged with murder. And... Yeah. Um, it was referred from legal aid and uh, to the law firm, and um, he wanted me to represent him. I was actually quite fearful, <laughs> like quite fucking like scared. I'm only just newly admitted, in the sense that shit, I'm only new to this. How can I represent this kid, right? But anyway, I did, 
But anyway, and I'm in the Supreme Court, just for a mention, and this other criminal defence lawyer, big note in itself, um, comes over to me and says, um, we'll tell you who to fucking brief. I said, you won't fucking tell me who to do, fucking what to do, mate. <laughs> I couldn't deal with it because I thought, yes, I'm a new lawyer, but, mate, I've been out on the streets longer than you and know how to fight on the streets, and you definitely some old white stale, pale male ain't going to be telling me <laughs> what to do, whether I'm a lawyer or not. So they didn't uh, do their research on me because um, they thought that they could just push me around. But they do that with everyone. Yeah. It's just horrific. So, um, yeah, they tried and, you know, and because I've always been the person too, like we don't brief ex-coppers or ex-prosecutors. Um, yeah. Some of them get up. How's that not a conflict? How's that not a conflict? Yeah, it's absolutely you, a conflict. You, Absolutely. You see that there's a certain firm, and I, I can say it without even name, but there was a certain firm that in Brisbane in particular, the, the principal was an ex-homeowner copper, and, and I know of blokes that didn't even make a legal aid application and, and got into the cells and were told that that firm would be representing them. Oh, yeah, I know who the law firm is, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I think it's pretty common knowledge. They bail me up. It's like, oh, fuck off. I don't give a fuck you're an ex-copper, mate. Piss off. Yeah. Yeah. They, they yeah and then they, then, then they, these ex-coppers who become, some of them, become criminal defence lawyers and put on their website that that, that proudly, because they used to hide it, right? Then they then they decided when after I got admitted, they put it up proudly on their website that they're ex-coppers and we can help you because we have relationships with the police and get a better outcome. It's like, oh, my God. If I saw that on a website, I'd run for the hill. But some people did, right? It's good to see there's a couple of them in trouble at the moment. Well, I don't want to see anybody in prison. I don't care who they are. Like, well, but I mean, when I say that, there's a couple of them being made accountable. That's what I mean. Yeah, well, accountable is different than going to prison because prison, yeah, yeah. Like anybody can. Yeah. Prison just brutalises us all. And yes, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, believe that people need to be held accountable for any action. Um, yeah. However, where we are right now in this law and order society in this capitalist world is we rely on prisons to make people accountable and it doesn't work Deb, can you just give us a quick rundown i really want to draw attention to the organization just an organization of fucking i really love and that's the sisters inside can you just tell us a bit about that yeah so after debbie got murdered and all that and the manager new manager come in and education officer blah 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 what happened was the um director general of corrections at the time had an idea to set up committees uh, by the women because there was just over a hundred of us then right so it was easy to do we were like the guinea pigs and so these committees were set up so there was committees you know of the women inside around to look at health food visits industry education like street there was a street kids committee like I was the um, like the chair of that because most of us were kids that come from juvie and from the streets um, there was a life as a long termist committee so these committees, and anyway, the chairs of us or the conveners we were called, would meet then with the general manager once a month of the prison to be able to advocate about changes internally for the prison. So what happened out of that was, you know, it taught a lot of us how to think around corners and be more articulate to get our arguments across and get what we wanted. So when I was released, you know, and the screws always say, see, when you come back, it's like, yeah, I'll be back, but not how you want me. But anyway, so, and I won't be in cuffs, but... So what happened is I got out and I said to the women I'd be back because, you know, I'm a firm believer that all we have in life is our word. We have nothing else. Um, but like I said to them, I need to get my feet solid on the ground out in the free world before I come back because the ground can get wobbly because of being institutionalised for so many decades. 
And so, you know, I got my feet in the ground, solid, went back in. And so the Life as a Long-Termist Committee, um, we actually basically became sisters inside. And so we still have a committee of women in prison that are on our management committee today, so 30 years on. So, you know, I'll be out in the prison again. I was there two weeks ago. I'll be back there in two weeks to meet with our management committee again. So we're very much driven by the grassroots, um, by women inside. So over the years, we've built the organisation. It's an abolitionist organisation. Um, we have an office here in Mianjin. We have an office up in North Queensland. We do. Uh, we have a lot of services and programs for women and girls, their kids, families and communities. We do a lot of law reform and advocacy, um, training and community education, and we have the law firm attached to Sisters Inside, So, because it has to be legally. So Kilroy and Callaghan Lawyers, my law firm's attached. Deb, I think you're just an amazing, uh, amazing woman, inspirational to so many people, me included. And I, I mean, I, you know, when I started my organisation, I thought, wow, and I, I really, I know you've given a lot of people in the prison system and a lot of people that have been treading down by the system a lot of hope. And um, I don't think you're given, I think, you know, you, you deserve an Order of Australia or something like that, Australian of the Year, because you are a dead set inspiration and fighter. And I love your attitude about, you know, let's fucking, let's just get in and have a go. And I think not many lawyers have that attitude these days, unfortunately. But um, man, I'll tell you what, I, I could talk to you forever and a day. I think you're so fascinating and, and inspirational no, I think the superlatives I, I, I can I can, can come up with at the moment just doesn't don't do you justice and um, that's it you're a hero to, to so many people and, and thank you so much for being on the show today no thanks and be happy to catch up whenever you're back in town and um, you know we can talk again it's been great I can't believe the time's gone so quickly I'd love, I mean I'd, I'd love to do it again there's so much to talk about yeah we got yeah we've had only just touch the surface like really in a conversation but you know we we all have a part to play you know we all of all of us have so much more in common than what separates us and um, that's the important thing and we've got to keep fighting and, and until all of us will never be free until all of us are free for me it's about educating this is yeah. this is you see you know ray hadley and that will tell you all this bullshit about the prison system it's holidays and hotels and all that but the reality of it is that's what i'm trying to educate the people you want your kids uh, going through there, your kids fall on hard times. Do you, is that what you want for them? Mm. Well, you know, like I'm saying to Ray Hadley, at the end of the day, you know, we're in this hotel and all the rest of it. I'd be more than happy for him to pick the flashiest hotel wherever and put him there for a month. He can stay there and he can order his room service and anything else he wants, but he cannot ever leave. He'll be scrapping mm. within about 48 hours. Like, you know, it ain't about, yeah. it's about the caging. It's about the deprivation of liberty. Um, it's about the harm. But I mean, you know, this about, I'm in a five star, six star hotel. I'm more than happy for people, you know, like years ago at one of our conferences and cause Storm who killed Debbie um, is on, you know, part of Sisters Inside. I advocated for her to be released on parole because we, because in the beginning when we started Sisters Inside, Sisters Inside is about all women all girls, right, who are criminalised in prison. Not just all girls except Storm because she killed my fucking friend, right? It had to be all, which actually meant I needed to reconcile the relationship with her about what happened between yeah. us and about Debbie's killing. And that's what I did. You know, I got one of um, the women to tell Storm at Bogoro to come up to the fucking chapel so we can have a conversation. And she's like, who fucking told you to say that? And she said, Debbie, she's like freaking out, come up. 
And we started conversations without screws, no one. We did it ourselves. And, you know, and she's out here on parole now. And, you know, because it has to be, it's about all of us. It, it's not about some of us because others have committed, you know, have committed so much harm that we can't fathom it or can't swallow it because it's about, we're all human beings and we all have a story and some of us have caused more harm than others, but it doesn't mean that we have to give up on that human being. Yes, it might be that they um, need to be uh, separated from the community because they're going to cause more harm, but the prison can't be that place. Tell you what changed my life, five years of trauma counselling, now I employ 19 people, I'm described as a productive member of society, and, and part of a, a lot of people's healing journey. Well, it's amazing when they get it right, what, what's achieved. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to ask about our history because then they would have to do something about it because yeah. things that have happened to us are deemed criminal within this legal framework, right? And yeah. they don't want to do that um, because it serves the prison industrial complex's survival that there's offenders and victims and that we're only seen in those contexts, contexts and nothing else. Um, when we know, you know, the majority of women, and I would say all women in prison, have been um, are survivors of the most horrific violence in many, many forms, and and also men. You know, and even the violence that continues. Like I, I had to ring up a general manager of a prison yesterday because they put someone in, they doubled someone up, and that person was being sexually assaulted. And, you know... It's happening today. Prison facilitates rapes and killings all the time and, and physical violence. You, know, you talk about Wilson, right? In the work I've done, every state's got a Wilson and every state's had a, had a Boys Town. Over the years, they've all got one. Yeah, of course. The imports of the prisons that get built now are all, you know, from America. You know, like I was in Samoa a few years ago before COVID and went to the women's prison there. It was a little old... Um, you know, little old shelters with no windows, etc. But I mean, that's Samoa, right? And mm. I was taught, and there was probably 20, 30 women there. And um, that really never should be there. But anyway, but they were saying that, that Australia and um, I think it was New Zealand, anyway, Australia definitely is working with them because some of the people from prison system here had been over there. What they've done now is built a thousand cell prison in Samoa thousand cell where before hardly anyone was in the prison right it's just mind blowing yeah. um, so they just um you know transport um these mechanisms of harm across borders wherever you know you go to african countries the same big mass american australian style prisons built bang because it's an industry but you look at the norwegian system that has the lowest recidivism rate in the world yeah. they look at rehabilitation as an investment whereas the Americans look at the, the privatisation of prisons as an investment. Yeah. Well, it's about how we treat people, you know, like at the end of the day. And I know the Norwegian system gets spouted about all the time, but it ain't that flash for women. Isn't it? No. That's the, that's the bit that we don't hear about. No, we, well, women are hardly ever spoken about because it's a male-dominant system, right? Yeah. In patriarchal world. It's amazing that you talked about that woman when your dad died and she come and give you a bit of lollies, uh, some, some lollies and that. Isn't it amazing when you're shown a bit of kindness how you respond to it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
and if that a bit of empathy and compassion goes a long way. I done that talk with these kids the other day, and mate, they just responded. My was going out and said, Russell, can you come back? Can you, can you come back? And man, yeah. wow. It's like I spent a day with those boys in Banksia Youth Prison, and they're the boys that have been brutalised, and and uh, I spent the day with them because they're saying they won't engage with you. They, I spent the whole day with them, and then I went and because the bloke who was running Banksia Prison used to run Woodford here. So when I went and spoke to him, because they, they had nothing, and I, I said, can I get canvas and paints and bring it in for the kids? I said, well, we're not paying for it. I said, I don't give a fuck. I'll go buy it myself. And I did. I went out and bought it and bought it back in. And those kids responded to me because all the screws are going, they won't even talk to you. You're a woman. It's like, yeah, they'll fucking talk to me. Watch this. Um, but that's right. It's about treating people with respect and dignity, no matter who they are. And um, people just don't do that because you know who the problem is. It's the adults. Yeah, I agree. I just I, I get blown away. I, I've li- I've experienced what you've experienced from adults as a child. An adult being so horrible to me, yeah. and and you wonder and you, and and you question. And from my own experience, I dare say it would have been similar to yours. You question yourself, say, what, what have I done to this person? What's so bad about me that this person wants? to do this shit to me, it's, it's a horrible time. Yeah, I was in Argentina in 2019, speaking at one of those big international corrections conferences, and uh, there was a guy there, he re- had retired, but he ran the prisons in the UK, and what he spoke about was that you can run any program in a prison, but it don't mean nothing, and I agree with him. Because, you know, mm. It gives you something to do with that, but it's not going to be life-changing. He said, what I've learned over the years is that by treating other human beings with respect and dignity, you get more from that than running a program. And I actually agree with him. And I said um, to the conference, I agree. So, of course, all these psychologists that have been making a fortune on the backs of running programs and evaluating them and researching them got up and arced up and had a big blue in this conference. And it's like, mate, you got no idea. Because a program lasts this long, and I click my fingers. That's how long a program lasts in my life. It ain't going to be life-changing to what happens to me. Because what I need when I'm released is not a fucking program. I need a roof over my head. I need food. I need my kids. I need, you know, all those things that a program is never going to provide. And that's why, you know, I advocate very strongly about corrections should not be run in any programs at all. They are not program facilitators they are not mental health workers they are not social workers you know and i'm talking about when i use that language i mean those that don't use castle strategies that prisons you're there to turn a key and i know they don't turn keys anymore but i'm getting a visual here like Mm. or press a button to open a door that's your job that's your priority of a prison if community wants prison so step the fuck back and get out of our way. Let us, who know what we're doing, come and work with the women and the girls inside because we will be here on their release to support them and walk with them and do what needs to be done to keep them out. You don't because you say goodbye at the door and see you when you come back next time. And that's the prison industrial complex, how it just churns and churns and churns. People really need to hear that lived experience is better than 10 degrees you know someone with your lived experience and that's man i I, that's what i i I, like that's part of what i want to do is just educate people and say let's make this change it's got to happen it's not working we're just creating trauma 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 and traumatized people that react and when they react you say they're bad people because they act in a violent way or they 
you know, drug addicted or to commit crime or anything like that. Then you stand in judgment, and it's just a shame. And they just, oh man, I could I could talk about this stuff for days. But I'd, man, I'd love to let's do something down the track, Dan. I'd love to jump on board with anything that you're doing, or and I'd love to get you involved in some of the stuff that we're doing. You know? Yeah, no, it sounds good. Yeah, absolute pleasure. You're a legend. Okay, thanks, Russell. It'll be great to talk to you and talk again soon.